Yesterday afternoon, I was in my backyard working on a project, uh, trying to sand down the trim on our shed in the backyard and re so we can repaint it. And I get a text message from Pastor Bart. And, uh, he asked if I'd like to preach this morning. <laughs> you can pray for Pastor Bart and his family. They've been hit with whatever stomach bug is going around. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it, it does not sound fun. So praying for the Horton family. I know Bart loves to open the word with you. He loves you. He loves going through Colossians with you, and I know he's eager to get back into Colossians chapter 4 with you all next Sunday. So I walked inside, and I asked my wife, who's so much smarter than me and godlier than me, and uh, if it wasn't for First Timothy 2 and other passages in Scripture, she'd make the better pastor. Uh, but I asked her, I was leaning towards pretty intense, thundering message on uh, spiritual blindness and, and uh, idols of the heart from Rich Young Ruler in Matthew 19. And I was saying, I think I'm going to do Rich Young Ruler. What do you think? And with the graciousness and kindness of a godly wife, she paused and she says, that's a good passage. She said, I think people need a psalm. And she's right. There's a lot of heavy things going on in the world, a lot of heavy things going on in culture, a lot of uncertainty and instability. And God has given us a beautiful book, the book of Psalms, 150 individual hymns that remind us to place our trust in God alone. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. That's a favorite psalm of mine. It's also a favorite psalm from a, of an individual that if you know me, you know that I'm a big fan of this individual, a man named Martin Luther. This was one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms. You know, October is a month where certain church history nerds like myself like to commemorate the Protestant Reformation because it was on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, which most historians mark as the instigating event that kicked off the Protestant Reformation, which was ultimately a work of God in the hearts of men, bringing the gospel to bear upon the continent of Europe where people had lost the gospel and had not received the, the faithful preaching of the word of God. Luther, though, was a man who had had a difficult life. He was not a stranger to fear. He was born into a culture that was marked by superstition, fear of the unknown, it was not too many decades before Luther's lifetime that the Black Plague had ravaged Europe, killing hundreds of people. A village and town could go from normal to afflicted with the plague overnight. In the span of weeks, hundreds would be dead. Life was uncertain. Death was an impending reality. Luther grew up in a world marked by the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church, the obscuring of the gospel, the hiding of the scriptures in the Latin Vulgate, and a culture overwhelmed with superstition. People feared demons. They feared witches. They feared spells and incantations. Luther grew up in a world of fear, but none of these things were what made him afraid most. What made him afraid most was the wrath of God. Luther knew enough to know that there is a God and that he has a holy standard and that those who fail to meet that standard who aren't covered in perfect righteousness will spend eternity apart from God in eternal torment. 
That is true, and Luther knew it. He lived much of his life into young adulthood, terrorized, terrorized by the fear of the wrath of God and standing before God in his sins. One day, as he was traveling from one town to another, he was caught in a massive thunderstorm. A bolt of lightning struck the ground near him, and in his desperation and his fear, he cried out to God, uh, not to God, excuse me, but to St. Anne, the Catholic patron saint of minors. His father was a minor. He cried out to St. Anne, save me, I'll become a monk. Luther was spared from the thunderstorm, and he made good on his promise. Not long after that event, he entered an Augustinian monastery, became a devout Augustinian monk. He would later say that if any monk was ever saved by his monkery, I was that monk. What do you mean by that? He practiced asceticism. He would subject himself to staying up all night in uncomfortable positions, outside in the cold, or laying prostrate on the hard floor. He would seek to get right with God through treating himself poorly. He would go continually to confession, over and over and over, confessing this sin, that sin, with incredible scrupulousness and never feeling forgiven. It got so bad that his confessor, the man that he kept coming to to confess his sins, told him to stop and not come back until he had something worth confessing. Luther was terrorized by fear. Luther was also driven to find the answer for that fear. He went on a pilgrimage to Rome in 1510. And in Rome, he saw relics. He saw opportunities to buy salvation. And he also saw corruption and hypocrisy and perversion. It made him at points despair if there was any hope at all. He saw further corruption seven years later when the Roman Catholic Church was sending, were sending out salesmen, such as a man named John Tetzel, selling indulgences, which was a piece of paper that you could purchase for an amount of money. And depending on what you bought or how much you bought, it could be for yourself or for a loved one, it would absolve you from certain sins or reduce your time in purgatory. Luther realized that this was antithetical to what he was reading in the Scriptures. And though not yet a fully converted believer, he wrote the 95 Theses in 1517. Luther's fear abated not long after that as he studied the Word of God. He spent much time in the book of Romans and in the book of Psalms. And in Romans and in Psalms, he realized that the righteousness of God is not only an impossible standard. It is an impossible standard on our own. But the righteousness of God is also a free gift that comes to all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot meet the standard of God's righteousness on your own. Luther knew that very well. We should know that as well. But as Romans 3 tells us, it is given to us as a gift through the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the empty tomb. God gives his righteousness to all who repent and believe. And when Luther discovered that, that it was by faith alone in Christ alone, he says he felt as if he entered paradise itself. He became a truly converted man, resting in the grace of God. You might think that that was the last time Luther ever felt fear. It wasn't. Four years after the writing of the 95 Theses in 1521, Luther was summoned to a, a diet, a meeting of both government officials and church officials, where he was called to defend, defend his writings. It was in a town called Worms. 
So we, that's where we get diet of worms, or it's a W. So in English, we say diet of worms. That doesn't mean he was eating worms. Luther is called in front of all these officials, including the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and he's asked to make a defense. Do you stand by what you've written, or will you recant? And you might think in that moment, Luther would make his courageous speech and stand for the truth. But do you know what he did initially? He asked for one day. He asked for a night and a day to pray, to seek God's counsel. He was struggling with fear. He was struggling with terror. If he stood firm to what he believed, it could mean being burnt at the stake or executed in some other painful and horrific way. But the next day he came and boldly said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. Now Luther knew he was probably going to get killed, but trusting in the grace of God and the strength that God supplies, he made his courageous stand. Not long after that courageous stand, he was kidnapped, not by his enemies, but by his friends. He was kidnapped by emissaries sent from a man named Frederick the Wise, who was the political ruler over Luther's town of Wittenberg. Frederick cared about Luther and wanted to see Luther unharmed, so Frederick sent soldiers to kidnap Luther, and he was taken to the Wartburg Castle, where he spent the better part of a year translating the scriptures into German. He also wrote a hymn while he was at that castle undoubtedly reflecting on everything that had happened in his life, the fear that God had led him through and led him out of, the, evident, uh, the, the incident at the Diet of Worms, and the evidence of God's sustaining grace as he saw it at work in his life and as he read about it in the Word of God, he wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on Psalm 46. James Montgomery Voice writes, Luther's favorite psalm was Psalm 46. It is said that of Luther that there were times during the dark and dangerous periods of the Reformation when he was terribly discouraged and depressed. But at such times, he would turn to his friend and co-worker, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. We know it as a mighty fortress is our God. Commenting on this psalm itself, a commentator named Ross says, This psalm holds out the promise that there is coming a time when there will be no more wars and devastations. For the Lord will reign over all the earth with righteousness and power. But in the meantime, people must put their trust in him who alone can give them the sense of security and safety for which they long. It is a message of great encouragement for believers that the God who will bring everlasting peace is able to give peace to the troubled heart today. But it is also a message of warning to the world that unless they cease their raging, and submit to God's authority, they will never find that sense of true security. So if you have your copy of God's Word and it's open to Psalm 46, please stand and we will read this psalm, Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, 
the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You may be seated. This psalm was not just a comfort to Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. It has been a comfort to believers ever since it was first written thousands of years ago. I pray that it's a comfort to you this morning. This psalm presents us with three encouraging realities about God, our mighty fortress. Three encouraging realities about our mighty fortress. My prayer for you today, if you are a believer in Christ, is that you would walk out of here resting in the uncontestable power of Almighty God. Who is for you? Who is for you if you are a believer? As Paul writes the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the heart of every true Christian. If God is for us, who can be against us? The nations, all the peoples of the earth can be mounted against you. Society itself could crumble and fall apart. The ground beneath you could shake and fall away. But if God is your fortress, you don't need to fear. You absolutely do not need to fear. God is our refuge and strength. The first of these realities is this. God is sovereign over our environment. God is sovereign over our environment. Now, this psalm is broken up into three stanzas, three individual sections that teach us truth about God. If I had to sum up the first stanza, it would be this. This isn't on the PowerPoint. This is just for your own edification. This is calm in the face of calamity. Stanza one is calm in the face of calamity. Stanza two is a city under siege. And stanza three is God's everlasting reign. Calm in the face of calamity, a city under siege, and God's everlasting reign. The first stanza teaches us that our God is sovereign over our environment. Verses one through three. It begins with the spirit-inspired superscription to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, the song. We'll start with three of these phrases. To the choir master, according to Alamoth in a song, means this is something that was given to the music director, a song meant to be sung by the people of Israel. The word Alamoth is a Hebrew word that refers to young girls. It could be that this was meant to be sung in a soprano register or sung by just the females present. We can't speculate beyond what it's just said. It was written by the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah was a group of individuals, men who led Israel in worship, beginning around the time of King David and onward throughout Israel's history. We don't know exactly when this psalm was written. However, context seems to indicate that it was during the time of Hezekiah's reign when Sennacherib and the armies of Assyria gathered around Jerusalem and laid siege to Jerusalem. 
James Montgomery Boyce points out that there's two different theories about when this psalm was written. The lesser theory is during the reign of Jehoshaphat when Ammon, Moab, and Edom laid siege to Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles 20. But Boyce sides with most commentators, and I agree as well, that it was most likely during the time when Sennacherib and Assyria surrounded the people of Jerusalem, taunting them, saying, where is your God? We destroyed all these other nations. We sacked all these other cities, and you're going to be just another one on the list. And Hezekiah went and prayed. And that night, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, went out and killed 185,000 Assyrians. Just as God was a refuge and strength, a present help in time of trouble for the Israelites at the time of the siege by Assyria, so he is to the believer now. That's why the psalm begins with a bold declaration. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There is nothing, there's no confusion. There is nothing at question about this statement. It is clear, it is simple, and it is this. God and God alone is the believer's refuge and strength. Boyce points out that this psalm emphasizes the exclusivity of God. We are tempted, are we not, to find refuge and strength in a number of things. Your savings account, your health, your regiment of supplements and essential oils. I could say a few things about essential oils, but I'll, I want people to like me, so let's keep moving. Uh, your time spent in the gym, your 401k, your padlock on your door, your small armory that could arm a small nation that you have in your basement. We are tempted to trust in a lot of things. Your wit, your intelligence, your people skills, your charisma, your connections. None of these should be the final refuge for the believer. What the psalmist here emphasizes is God is our refuge and strength. God alone. Are these things wrong to pursue? No. Be wise. Take care of your health. Have a savings account if you can. Protect your family to the best of your ability, especially you men. Absolutely have these things. We're not advocating being foolish. But at the end of the day, where is your trust? Where is your final hope? God and God alone. God is our refuge and strength. God is our refuge and strength. Third word here is also important. God is our refuge and strength. Who's the our? The psalmist is speaking on behalf of the people of God. This promise of protection is not a blanket universal promise to every single human being that's ever lived. This is for a specific set of people. That specific set of people are all those who have repented and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was those who looked ahead to the Messiah, the seed of the woman that God would one day send to deal with sin. For those of us now living in the church age, we look back to the Messiah. But the hour here is not every single human being that's ever lived. It's only applicable to those who know God in a saving way. Friend, I want you to be able to say, God is my refuge and strength. But you cannot do that if you are not part of God's family. 
If you have not yet turned from your sins, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendered to him in repentant faith, saying, I'm done living for myself. I want him to be not just the king out there, but my king personally. If you have not yet done that, then right now you're reading someone else's mail. This isn't yet for you. But God is calling all men everywhere to repent. The call of the gospel goes to all people throughout all time. If you're hearing the gospel, you're being summoned to Christ. Now, yes, we do believe that God has chosen those before the foundation of the world who will place their faith in him, but we don't know who they are. God has not given us the list of his chosen. He says, go and preach the gospel to every person because while there is life, there is hope. God is calling to you. It is not a mistake that you came to church today. If you've been pushing off God, if you have been persisting in your sin and in your impenitence, hear what Paul says to the Romans in Romans 2.4. Don't you know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Yet again, God is giving you an opportunity to turn to him and trust in him and run to him. He brought you here today. You might have thought it was all you. You chose your outfit. You got in the car. You drove here. You sat in this seat. Yes, you made those choices. But God sovereignly superintended every single one of them to bring you here. And he's calling to you. He wants you to be able to say, God is my refuge and strength. Have you turned to him? Have you trusted in him? Have you bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I don't want to be Lord of my own life anymore. I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's what it means to become a Christian. It doesn't mean you just pray a prayer, although you do need to pray. It doesn't mean that you just affirm a doctrinal statement, although doctrine is important. To become a Christian means you are under new management. Your heart is changed in a way that only God can do it. He takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh and he gives you a desire to obey him. And now you live for Jesus. You turn from sins to serve the living and true God, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. That's what it means to be a Christian. You come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and when you do that, you can say, God is my refuge and strength. Now, these terms refuge and strength are used throughout all of Scripture to describe how the Lord acts towards his people. The first one, refuge, deals with the idea of protection from external threats. Strength is the idea of internal enablement. Everything you need to live a godly life and to make your way, as, as Jesus says, I'm sending, you out, I'm sending you out among wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. To make your way through this life, you have in God's refuge and in the strength that God supplies. God is our refuge and strength the Psalms refer to God as refuge over and over. Listen to these. Psalm 61.3, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Psalm 62.8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Psalm 91.2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 94.22, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. Over and over and over. That's just four of a score of psalms we could look at. God is called a refuge. One commentator points out the noun form of this word refuge, when it's changed into the Hebrew verb form of the same word, 
It's the act of trusting. In the Hebrew mindset, a refuge was meant to be taken advantage of. A refuge was meant to be trusted in. It does you no good if you are fleeing from an enemy and you pass by a strong tower that is impregnable and is open to you and you say, wow, what a nice tower, and you keep on running. The very existence of the refuge itself is an implicit invitation for you to run into it and be safe. This refuge is available for you, believer. Trust in God. Trust in God. When do you trust in God? All the time. But what specifically is in view here? A very present help in trouble. Now, uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but trouble is affliction, trials, tribulations. It can refer, refer to anything difficult and hard in this life. Relational suffering, medical issues, financial difficulty, fear of the unknown, fear of the future, societal instability, fear of death. All of these are encompassed by this term, times of trouble. God is our refuge. He's calling you to run to him. He is there for you. He's also your strength. God is our refuge and strength. As we said, refuge deals with external threats. Strength is internal enablement. Have you ever been at a point where you feel like you cannot go on? Have you ever feel zapped, drained, have nothing left, and yet you know God is calling you to do certain things. Think of young moms. They're called not just to make sure the kids are fed and clothed, but Christian moms are called to do so in a way with graciousness and kindness, with love, being one of the chief ambassadors of the gospel to those little souls in your home. And by 8 o'clock at night, you're probably absolutely zapped. And yet God calls you to still be a person of self-control, patience, kindness, love. Well, how do you do that? Turn to God for strength. Those of you who have unbelieving coworkers and you know you need to share the gospel with them and it's weighed on you and you've put it off for months, maybe years, and you're afraid, you wonder what will happen to our relationship, what will happen to my status at the office, what will happen to people, what they think about me and my reputation, will I be labeled a fundamentalist Bible thumper? No, if God has called you to do something, he will enable you to do it. This doesn't mean you will be able to run a marathon or bench press 500 pounds, but what it does mean, whatever task God has called you to do in the Christian life, he will enable you to do it when you turn to him and trust in him. Isaiah 40, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whatever spiritual task God has called you to do, you can do when you turn to God for that strength. Exodus 15, 2, the people said, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Psalm 28, 7 through 8, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. God is our refuge and our strength. Next, he's a very present help in time of trouble, an exceedingly present help in time of trouble. This is, this is the idea of abundance, overflowing. He is a very present help in time of trouble. What does it mean to be very present help? One thing that came to my mind as I was working through this is uh, I have a two-year-old son, and he loves to be around me. 
And he wakes up in the morning and he can't open his door. And so he's like banging on his door. He's like, bang, 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 dad. And so I go in and he's just with me. He's with me until his siblings get up and then they all play. But he's just with me. He's with me. You know, we're getting him ready for the day. He comes and he helps me make coffee. He's just right there, right next to me. God is closer to you than that. And you may not feel it, but it's what the word of God says. Exceedingly present, abundantly present, overflowingly present, closer to you than you realize. A very present help in time of trouble. This idea of very present carries the idea of both sufficient and imminent. Imminent is closeness, but also sufficient. He's more than enough. More than enough. We might be tempted to think that God gives us 85% of what we need. And then we got to muster up that remaining 15. No, no, no. He's more than enough. A very present, overflowing, abundant, sufficient help in time of trouble. Trouble. We've already mentioned this. What is trouble? Any hardship or difficulty that faces you in this life. It could be physical, health-related, relational. It could be financial. It could be facing that last enemy, death. Could be any pain or hardship. It's intentionally broad. God is with you in trouble. Jesus promised that we would have trouble. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It's a guarantee. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he's promised that you will have tribulation. But then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. James 1, 2 through 4. The apostles promised that we'd have it as well. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if. Not if you meet trials. When you meet trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are going to happen and they're meant for your good. They're meant for your growth and they're meant for God's glory. How does God get glory? When you turn to him as your help. You glorify God when you run to him for refuge. You glorify God when you seek him for his strength. Because he is shown in those moments to be sovereign. He is shown in those moments to be powerful, to be mighty, to be everything you need. Verse 2, what's the result of this? Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Verse 3, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. I've been in Kansas now over six years. I feel like I'm overdue for a tornado. I think there was one time there was a tornado that we saw it like off in the distance. It was after Grace Group on a Sunday night. All the men sat, sat outside and drinking coffee on the porch. And I like pretended like, yeah, I'm not worried. You know, this is fine, right? But never really been in a tornado yet. But I do remember what it's like to be in an earthquake. I was a kid when the 94 earthquake hit, the Northridge 94 earthquake, and its subsequent aftershocks. And there were many aftershocks, some of them going on for 30 seconds or longer. There is no feeling of like feeling helpless when everything around you is shaking. Pictures are falling off the walls. Glasses are breaking. And you can't do anything to stop it. There's no off switch. Everything is rumbling and shaking. And you just have to wait and pray. Therefore, we will not 
fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, even if the whole world falls apart, the people of God who know that God is their refuge and their strength, the natural expected result is they will not fear. Now, will you always be perfectly brave and courageous? No, you'll never do anything perfectly this side of heaven. You won't even repent perfectly this side of heaven. That's why we have Christ, our substitute, and our representative. But the pattern of a growing Christian is when faced with difficulties, you ultimately turn to the Lord for strength, for refuge. And knowing who he is in relation to you brings calm to your heart. And the result is you don't fear. You don't fear. Now, you may struggle with fear. You may wrestle with fear. You may need to be reminded of God's truth over and over again. That is okay. That's part of the fight of the Christian life. But as you grow in Christ-likeness, you grow in a steady, settled assurance of God's power for you. You say with the psalmist in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. As you grow in your relationship with God and with Christ and you are more and more convinced of his love for you and his power towards you, fear diminishes and fades away. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Mountains are pictures of stability. Mountains seem to have always been there. In fact, Psalm 90, Moses appeals to the mountains as symbols of of firmness. And and he says, you know, before you brought the mountains forth, God, you've always been everlasting. But by comparison and contrast, the mountains are portrayed as symbols of stability. And yet here in this psalm, they're portrayed as crumbling, falling into pieces into the sea. That word moved means to be shaken, to crumble. And it's going to show up again in this psalm. The psalmist says, God is sovereign over our environment. Therefore, we don't fear. Therefore, we do not fear. God is sovereign over our environment. Next, God is stronger than our enemies. God is stronger than our enemies. If we said the first stanza was calm in the face of calamity, the second stanza describes a city under siege. A city under siege. The first stanza looked at natural disasters. The second stanza looks at human enemies. Let's read this together. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Now this section begins with this phrase, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Ross comments this. He says, this section opens with one of the most beautiful but least understood lines of poetry in the book of Psalms. Commentators have gone back and forth. What is this river? You might be wondering, what's the big deal? Isn't there a river in Jerusalem? Well, you might think that. In the ancient world, almost every city that achieved some status or substance was built upon a river. Built upon a river. Babylon by the Euphrates. Nineveh was built on a river. Rome was built near rivers. London, even ancient London, built on the Thames. 
If you want a city, you build it by a river. But not Jerusalem. Jerusalem is unique. Jerusalem is high up in elevation, and its water supply is contributed by a spring, the Gihon Spring in the middle of Jerusalem. Throughout Israel's history, the Gihon Spring, which fed into various pools that people carved out to collect water, you know one of those pools, the Pool of Siloam. The Gihon Spring supplied Jerusalem with water, especially in times of military conflict. And as we read in Isaiah 8, the Gihon Spring, which flew into Jerusalem and supplied the people with drinking water, became connected with God's sustaining grace. God does supply us with what we need, and He does give us physical blessings. And in Israel's understanding, particularly in the city of Jerusalem, God's grace was seen in his provision of physical water through the Gihon Spring. In fact, it was Hezekiah who dug a tunnel that connected the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam. If you've ever been to Israel and you've taken a tour of Israel, perhaps you've walked through Hezekiah's tunnel. If you haven't, I recommend it. It's fun. God sustained his people through the physical gift of a river. There is a river, verse 4, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. In the midst of enemies, knowing that God is providing for you, you can still be glad. You can still have joy. But it's not just because of the physical blessing itself. If your joy begins and ends at God's physical blessings, then you are missing out on the joy that comes from knowing the giver which is what verse 5 tells us. It's not just about the river. It's about the giver. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now, what's significant about that word moved? It's the exact same word as verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Even if all of this earth crumbles and falls apart, the people of God are stable and secure because of the presence of God. The people of God are stable and secure because of the presence of God. Mountains can crumble, but Christians will never. Mountains can fall into the sea, but Christians will never fall ultimately. If you are one of God's people, and Romans 8 tells you he's got you now all the way to glory, he will bring you home. Jesus says the shepherd has the sheep in his hand and none is able to snatch them out of the shepherd's hand. Paul says neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation. And by the way, that includes your own sin. Some people think that you can sin your way out of God's sustaining grace. No, no, no. Your sin is part of anything in all creation. Nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once you belong to God's family, you're part of God's family forever. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her, in the midst of the city of Jerusalem, which was representative of the people of God. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And now we see the enemies. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The nations rage. This is a term that refers to peoples, the people groups, the individual Gentile, or at this time in biblical history, unbelieving people, people outside of the covenant of God. They rage. The idea of a mass of people with their fists raised high in opposition and defiance against God. And since they can't get to God, they want to inflict their wrath upon God's people. They rage, and what is the result? The kingdoms totter. Again, this is that same word moved. It's just translated as totter. Some translations keep the translation of the verb consistent. 
move, move, move. What is the psalmist saying? The peoples rage in defiant opposition against God and kingdoms, the political structures, the societies are moved. What's the psalmist saying? Mountains can fall apart and societies can fall apart, but Christians are secure. Mountains can fall apart, societies can fall apart, but believers are secure. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. How does God respond? Second part of verse 6, he utters his voice, the earth melts. You know, when Luther wrote uh, Mighty Fortresses Our God, one of the stanzas describes the conflict between Christ and the evil one. It says, Prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What did Luther mean by that? All Christ has to do is just speak one word, and the evil one is done. This world will melt. A day is coming when Christ will unmake the entire cosmos. Just as God made it with his voice, God will unmake it with his voice. People scheme and they plot and they plan coups and wars and military advancements and sieges. All Jesus has to do is speak and this world will come undone. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Verse 7 The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Why does the psalmist use the phrase Lord of hosts? Why does he use the phrase Lord of hosts? Now this refrain shows up here in verse 7 and in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. Because the psalmist is wanting us to be reminded of the fact that even though people who hate God and who are against God's people, they amass their forces, even armies, God's armies are stronger. Lord of hosts is a military term. And most likely it refers to the fact that God is not the God of human armies, but he's the God of angelic armies. The God of angelic armies. This phrase calls to mind one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. It's 2 Kings 6. 2 Kings 6. I'll read you a portion of that story. You might be familiar with it already, but just listen and try to picture yourself in this scene. And in the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who, is, who, who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. The king of Syria's secret counsels were being leaked somehow to the nation of Israel, his political enemy, military enemy. And he thought there was a traitor in their midst. But really, the people re- recognize Elisha, the prophet, knows because God is telling him what's going on. Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And the king of Syria said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. Verse 14. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city. They want to get Elisha. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16, he said to to him, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
It doesn't matter how fierce the armies of this world are arrayed against the people of God. God's armies are stronger and more powerful, and they're present to help. That's what it says here, verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Why does he say God of Jacob? Why does he say God of Jacob? If you remember Jacob, you remember he was not necessarily the most upright man for most of his life. He learned to trust the Lord and fear the Lord near the end of his life. I believe he was finally converted after that night of wrestling with God. But before those uh, periods of humility and repentance, he was in opposition. And yet God, because of his covenant, was with Jacob. In Genesis 28, 10 through 17, in Genesis 28, 10 through 17, we read that Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. God commits to be with Jacob, and he pictures his presence and his sustaining help and aid to Jacob with the picture of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The same Lord who's Lord of the armies of heaven, the same Lord who covenanted to be faithful to the scoundrel Jacob is with you and is your fortress if you are one of his people. Which brings us to our third and final point. Our God is supreme over everything. He's stronger, he's sovereign over our environment, stronger than our enemies, and supreme over everything. Verse eight, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. We now come to some of the first imperative commands in the whole psalm. Everything up till now has been informative. Now it's imperative. What does that mean? It's something you've got to do. In fact, three things you are called to do in these verses. Here's your application. First, regard the power of God. Regard the power of God, verses 8 and 9. It's our first sub-point. Regard the power of God. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Many commentators have pointed out that this has in mind both looking at God's actions throughout history, but it has a view towards the end of days. God stops armies. Didn't he do it with Pharaoh in the Red Sea? He did it with Sennacherib and the siege of Jerusalem. He did it with the king of Syria when he sent to seize Elisha the prophet. God's in the business of stopping armies. But one day he'll stop all armies. Kidner says this, this is a vision of things finally to come. Although the victories of the present are a foretaste of them. The word for behold is generally used for seeing with the inward eye. Although the outcome of this psalm is peace, Kidner says, the process is judgment. God will bring peace by defeating his enemies. God will bring peace by defeating his enemies. Boyce says there is a future coming when God shall defeat all armies and establish his eternal reign. God brings desolations on the earth. That is the description of just the utter stillness after a battle when an enemy has been totally and absolutely crushed. He brings desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease. 
to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns chariots with fire. This is a call now to anybody who is in opposition to God. Lay down your arms before God rips them out of your hands. Stop your fighting before God stops you. Bow the knee before you are made to bow because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Regard the power of God. Next, revere the position of God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Now this phrase often shows up on Christian artwork, but it means this, be still, means cease striving. It's not primarily a call to the believer to have inward tranquility of heart, although that is an application. That's a legitimate application. But the primary meaning of this is a call to enemies to stop fighting while you have time. Cease striving. Lay down your weapons. Friend, if you are, no matter how moral you look on the outside, if you are presently today living in rebellion against God, you're one of these enemies. And God is saying to you, cease striving. Submit to me. Be still and know, personal intimate knowledge, know that I, Yahweh, am Elohim. No one else. None of the false gods of the nations, not even you. God alone is Elohim. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth over all peoples and over all creation. Remember, natural disasters and enemies arrayed against God. God says, I will be lifted on high and proven to be victorious over all these people. Right now, God, though he does rule and reign, he is allowing people time to repent. He is giving people time to seek him. But a day's coming when he will force everyone to bow the knee. And this psalm concludes with a reminder to rest in the presence of God. Verse 11, again, we come back to this. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, our protection, our safe refuge. He's with us. We didn't talk about that the first time we saw this verse in verse 7. But with us is the Hebrew root word that we get the word Emmanuel. God with us. God coming to be with his people for protection. That is the promise that God offers to you if you bow the knee to him. He will be your refuge and strength, your present help in time of trouble. That was what comforted Martin Luther, and I pray it's what comforts you.